How are you guys doing this morning? Hey, we are continuing a series of messages through the Old Testament book of Exodus. We're learning about God's nature, his name. He reveals his name. We're learning about his character, uh, what it means to be kind of the followers of God, what it means to be for us today, the followers of Christ uh, in our world. Today, we're looking at the original Passover celebration. You probably saw that in a Disney movie. Or maybe you read about it. Is anybody reading the book of Exodus with me all the way through? Like, I, I would encourage you guys, if you're not doing it, you can read it from week to week. You can just read the part that we're going to cover, like the next couple chapters. Or you can do what I'm doing. You can just try to read through the whole book every week. And it's really fascinating to read through it. It's only like 30-some chapters. And it's not that difficult to read through. And it's really interesting. This is meant to be meditational literature. What I mean by that is it's more focused, it's, it's focused on the historical events, but it's more focused on tying together the past and the future into the present with what God's doing in these folks' lives. And so there's so many parallels, there's so many connections, like to the original story in Genesis, to the story of origin. We're meant to reflect back to that. We're meant to reflect forward to the person of Christ. We're meant to apply it to our own lives as we respond to God's invitations to completely trust him. So like just as an example, one of the ways that this comes out that the original readers and hearers would have understood. In Genesis, we read about a seven-day creation, and during those seven days, God speaks ten times. Like you're meant to notice that. In fact, it's actually embedded in there multiple times in the first couple chapters. And then here we have a time of God acting 10 times through the plagues. And the very first plague is seven days, that plague of the Nile River. We're not told about the length of the other ones, but that's meant to reflect you back to the original story and tie these things together that God is actually in charge. He's orchestrating events over and over again. Here in Exodus, over those 10 plagues, we have God speaking like, let my people go. And he addresses the snake. We talked about this last week, who in this case is Pharaoh. And that snake's lack of acknowledgement or trust in Yahweh has put everyone in bondage. God is about to free those people at least those who will put their trust in him. And that exact same freedom, it's available for you and I today and through this last plague. So let me show you how. This last plague is like the worst of them all. It's the absolute worst. Just when you thought it couldn't get any worse with the frogs and the gnats and the boils and the hail. And then God says in the ninth plague, let there be darkness, echoing back to let there be light. Now we have the death of all of Egypt's firstborn. If you have a Bible, why don't you open it up to Exodus chapter 11. I'm going to start reading through this, and we're going to unpack some of these things uh, in these chapters. I think it's really incredibly cool. Exodus chapter 11, it's on page 45 in the Bibles that you have in front of you there. Verse 1, here's how it reads. Now the Lord had said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. And when he does, he will drive you out completely. Tell the people that men and women alike are to ask their neighbors for articles of silver and gold. The Lord made the Egyptians favorably disposed towards the people. And Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and by the people. So Moses said, this is what the Lord says. About midnight, I will go throughout Egypt. 
Every firstborn son in Egypt will die from the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the female slave who is at her handmill and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any person or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Israel, Egypt and Israel. All these officials of yours will come to me, bowing down before me, saying, Go, you and all the people who follow after you, and after that I will leave. Then hot with anger, uh, then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. Verse 9, the Lord had said to Moses, Pharaoh will refuse to listen to you, so that my wonders may be multiplied in Egypt. Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let the Israelites go out of his country. Woo! This confrontation has reached a brutal climax. The slaughter of the Hebrew firstborn male babies, or all the male babies from chapters 1 and 2, is about to come back on Pharaoh and come back on Egypt in an absolutely horrible way. And then we have chapter 12, verses 1 to 28. There are the instructions about how to remember this moment. There's the Passover with the festival of unleavened bread. It kind of pulls away from the narrative for a moment and starts saying, okay, now, throughout history, here's how you're supposed to remember this moment. And then in verse 29, chapter 12, look there with me. It picks back up. Verse 29, chapter 12. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and the Egyptians got up during the night. There was loud wailing in Egypt for there was not a house without someone dead. During the night, verse 31, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron. He says, up, leave my people, you and the Israelites. Go worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks, your herds, as you have said, and go and also bless me. The Egyptians urged the people to hurry and leave the country, for otherwise they said, we will all die. So the people took their dough before the yeast was yet added and carried it on their shoulders in kneading troughs wrapped in clothing. The Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold and for clothing. The Lord had made the Egyptians favorably disposed to the people and they gave them what they asked for. So they plundered the Egyptians. And then verse 33, 43, it goes back to more instructions about the Passover meal. So most likely, Moses, uh, the author that I think did this, is writing to a group of Israelites who were still wandering in the wilderness for 40 years before entering the land that God had promised to them. Moses is kind of situating them into the reality of who they are and where they came from and where they're going. He's documenting, he's teaching, he's inviting future generations, like you and I, like into this story and what it means to live as the people of God. And so there's like four or five points that I'd like to talk through kind of from this and the surrounding passages. And the first one is this. You and I are invited into a completely different way of life following Jesus. It's a whole different story. And one of the things I see here is it's a story of life and death. It's a story of life and death. You can think about the Exodus as a second creation story. God is stepping into uh, the chaos of disobedience and slavery, and he's bringing order. 
Many, many people, Old Testament scholars who've written about this said, this is like the second creation story. God is stepping into this incredibly broken world and he's gonna bring order. He's establishing identity. He's bringing the new creation of a new people who bear his image. Just like the very first humans were created in the image of God. But it's costly to do that. There's two major aspects of this story, death and life. The story is told in a pretty spare, straightforward kind of way. There's no literary embellishment. There's no stopping to savor what happened to the Egyptians. There's no celebration over what happened to them. There's no pleasure in death. It's incredibly solemn. It takes place in the darkest, in the darkness of night to match kind of the darkness of the deed. No household, no barnyard was left untouched. However appropriate it is to talk about judgment and to reflect back on all the genocide of the Hebrew baby boys not long ago, no one rejoices at the death of these children. Their lives ended because of what their adults had done. Why not just take like a person from every Egyptian family? Why not do it differently, we might ask the question. Remember, this is not an ethnic conflict between Egyptians and Israel. This is a conflict between the one true God and the human pretending to be God. It's a conflict between the one true God, Yahweh, who is divine, and a human pretending to be divine, completely ignoring, not acknowledging Yahweh in any way, shape, or form, and then putting Yahweh's people, those who are going to identify him to the whole world, in incredible bondage. This is a public statement as to God's claim over all humanity, God's claim over Egypt, over all creation, that God is the authority over the Egyptian people, way more than Pharaoh. And out of the darkest of nights, God brings life to a people who will bear his image for the sake of of the whole world, for the sake of the whole world. Do you see anything pointing forward to Christ in that? Oh man, I do. The one who takes the punishment, the one who lays down his life. We see the same story in the New Testament in the Messiah. I'll get to more of that in a moment. It's a story of life and death. It's a story of protection and provision. There's an amazing contrast in the story between Pharaoh's complete lack of mercy, fueled by his fear that the immigrant Hebrews are going to overtake him in their population, that they're going to grow too strong. And so he throws every baby boy into the water, no mercy whatsoever. Yahweh turns that evil back on him. But for anyone, anyone, Egyptian or Hebrew, who fears the name of Yahweh, anyone who would apply the blood to the doorframe, Yahweh promises a Passover. Now, the word that we translate Passover is really interesting. Pesach. It's also translated in many places as protect. Like, look at this passage in Exodus 12, 23. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians... He will see the blood on the top and sides of the doorframe and will not possess that doorframe, that doorway. He will, or will possess that doorway. He will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. 
What word fits better in there? He will pass over the doorway or he will protect the doorway? When you take that word and you look throughout the scriptures, actually our English word protect is a way better translation of that. It's an amazing little deal. The word protect makes way more sense. Who cares? Why does that matter? Here's the picture. God is lovingly hovering over their homes to protect them. Pharaoh is refusing to acknowledge Yahweh and thus bringing destruction on everybody who trusts him. But for those who trust Yahweh, they are protected. We're going to see much more of that in just a moment. And again, who is included in this protection? Who is included in this means of escape? Who is included in this house that can become a refuge? What's really interesting, Noah's Ark, the word for Noah's Ark and the word for house are exactly the same letters, just in the opposite order. What God is saying is, it's this house. You put the blood on the doorframe, your house is actually going to become an ark of protection for you and your animals in this Passover. Again, Exodus chapter 12, on that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of the people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on your houses where you are. When I see the blood, I will pesah. I will protect you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. That phrase, into the house, is the word for Noah's ark. Think about that for a second. The house becomes a little ark where the humans and the animals go together. If you were an original reader, you would go, hey, wait a minute, I've seen that before. Those things that that reflect back, those little hyperlinks, are actually meant to show us God's love and protection over our lives if we'll orient our lives around him. Kind of makes me wonder for a moment. I wonder what areas of my life aren't oriented around him. In what ways do I step out of the house and try to make my own way? Like they were ordered, stay in the house. Don't leave the house. Put the blood on the doorpost and don't leave the house. Verse 22 in chapter 12. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood in the basin, and put some of the blood on the top and both sides of the doorframe. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. Stay under the protection of Yahweh. And then I love this next little bit. While you're in the house having this special dinner, be ready to leave at a moment's notice. Normally, when you sit down to a meal, like you get in comfortable clothing, especially Thanksgiving. You want it to be stretchy, right? You get in comfortable clothing. <laughs> you guys, I got you figured out. I figured this out. I had no idea they put elastic in waistbands until a few years ago. I'm like, this is amazing. <laughs> Who came up with that idea? Some of you are like, what? What's that? But, but look at this. Verse 11, chapter 12. This is how you are to eat it. With your cloak tucked into your belt, with your sandals on your feet, with your staff in your hand, eat this meal in haste, for it is the Lord's Passover. Why eat quickly? Why eat as if you're ready to leave? Why not use yeast in the bread? Yahweh's teaching them to be ready to depart at a moment's notice. They're going to have to pivot quickly with this whole thing. I think so do we. We have to learn how to pivot quickly. This life we're living, we're following the one who spoke the universe into existence. 
I don't know about you, but I want God through the Holy Spirit to have freedom in my life to direct me the way that he wants to go at a moment's notice. One of my favorite prayers in the morning is this. My feet are hitting the floor. It goes like this. It's really easy. You don't even have to write it down. You'll remember it tomorrow morning. Lord, I don't know what you're up to today, but I want in on it. God, I don't know what you're doing today. I don't know everything you got planned, but dude, I want in on it. And then when I'm like taking a shower, I'm like, Lord, would you open my eyes as I'm washing them and getting all the sleepy out? Lord, would you open my eyes to see what you're doing today? I want to participate with you. I want him to have the freedom to redirect my life at a moment's notice. There really is someone in charge, and you and I aren't it. There's someone who's in complete control, and you and I aren't that one. Staying under his protection means that he gets to call the shots. One of the things that we do, we're going to celebrate communion here in a little bit. One of the things that we do is we use unleavened bread in our communion. We use a matzah cracker because it reminds me of this principle every, little, every single week when I'm taking the matzah crackers communion. That we live, the Jesuits used to call it, living with one foot raised. Always ready to respond to what God's about to do. In the vineyard, we've used the phrase um, asking God for divine appointments throughout the day. Like my calendar, uh, uh, Megan is my assistant and she is so wonderful and she actually plans out my days for me, like my work days and sometimes my evenings. I'm like, I didn't know, Brendan, I had a date that night. Where did that come up? Right? And so, uh, uh, but one of the things I love to do is I love to leave room throughout the day to not only use the restroom and grab food, I think those things are important, but to be available for what God might be doing that's not in my calendar. What would it look like to actually leave room, to live with one foot raised, to like to eat the picture of them? Like you don't tuck your cloak into your belt unless you're getting ready to run. Like when you sit down to dinner, you like untuck it. You're like you relax a little bit. Like take off the sandals, put the sh- put the staff down. And they're saying no. There's opportunities that you hadn't planned on, but seem to pop up as you walk through your day. A conversation. A chance to lend a listening ear and a caring heart. A chance to pray for somebody who's not doing well. This past week, we taught uh, learning to pray like Jesus, which we learned to like listen for God's voice and participate with him in the moment. And we asked the question that will change your life. Like If you start asking this question every day, it actually changes the way you live. And the question is this, can I pray for you right now? You have to add the right now part, because otherwise people go, yeah, pray for me and walk away. When you say right now, they're like, oh, now, here, in the produce section? Yeah, I'll pray for you, and we'll pray for some good produce, right? And you just kind of go for it. And so somebody was just telling me the story of how God used them this week. I think it was the very next day after the class to pray for somebody. What would it look like for you to live as if you're ready to join whatever God's doing in a moment's notice? There's protection There's an invitation to participate, and then there's provision when you do that. Verse 35, the Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked the Egyptian for articles of silver and gold and for clothing, and they got it all. Their reality drastically changed as they're walking out the door of Egypt from being the slaves that were held down to now, like, 
They couldn't imagine living outside of forced labor. And now they've got all the plunder from Egypt just handed to them, given to them. Like they were able to build a tabernacle. Later on, we're going to read about in Exodus to worship Yahweh. Everything they needed was given to them to like exist in the wilderness for 40 years. I wonder if one of the things that holds us back, one of the reasons we don't follow the resurrected Christ in our real lives is because we don't trust his protection and his provision. We organize our lives, we organize our resources so often in such a way as to leave God out of the equation. We just leave him out of the equation. When I was younger and I was just beginning to make some decent money in my life as an artist, um, I actually, uh, my, my, I think I've told you guys this story before, but I'll tell it to you really quickly again. Uh, my pastor, his name was John, took me out to breakfast one day. He said, Michael, and I was starting to do some leadership. I was playing on worship teams. I was doing like, I was leading in the church, leading small groups, leading youth group. And he took me out to breakfast one day. He said, Michael, I want to talk, how's, how's giving going for you? How's tithing going for you? And I said, uh, not very good. He goes, I know. And I took it very gingerly, the next bite of my waffle. And I thought, oh, this is going to be painful. And he goes, he goes, listen, I love you. I want to see the absolute best for your life. Like, I want to challenge you. And he walked me through a bunch of stuff. And one of the things he said near the end of that conversation that's always stuck with me is he said, Michael, would you rather have 100% of your money and be on your own? Just on your own. Or would you have 90% and have the almighty God of the universe actually helping you? And I thought, I've never put God into the equation of my finances before. I was kind of doing it out of obedience, periodically. If it was a really good sermon, I'd toss in 20 bucks, like, hey, that's a good show. It's like a movie. You know, not nearly as entertaining. Nobody died, but, you know, it's okay. Listen, I just, personal experience. Brenda and I actually began to tithe from that point on. And I was shocked what we were able to do with our finances. I don't know how God does stuff. But it's like these Israelites leaving Egypt. They obeyed God. And then he just showed up in pretty powerful ways. I've got amazing stories of God uh, really helping us overcome at one point an $18,000 IRS debt in 30 days. It's amazing stories. Like That's a whole other thing that would take the whole message. The mistake we often make, the mistake I was making, is I was looking at all my responsibilities and I felt completely overwhelmed. I was looking at my resources and I didn't have enough because I never factored God into the equation. Protection and provision, how might you be doing the same thing? It's a story also where our actions really matter. Our obedience and our disobedience has serious consequences, not just for ourselves, but for those around us. To our modern ears, this story can seem brutal and completely unfair. What did the firstborn animals do to deserve this? What did the firstborn people do to deserve this? Aren't they just as innocent as the Hebrew babies were a few chapters ago? God is showing the entire world that our obedience, our disobedience has real consequences. Our submission to, our surrender to, our refusal to acknowledge Yahweh has real consequences for our lives and for the lives of others. 
The firstborn in Egypt died because of Pharaoh's actions. Here's something we learned from this part of Exodus. If you persist in acting like an Egyptian, God will treat you like an Egyptian. That's one of the things that we learn here. You'll be treated by God just like them. We're to take the commands of Yahweh really seriously. When Jesus left, he said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, you go to all ethnicities, make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. John 14, Jesus says that if you want to know if the truth is really true, you have to put it into practice. Then you will know the truth. You have to hold on to it, meaning it becomes my life. Then you will know that it's true, and the truth will set you free. It's not just learning about it. It's not just studying some dry, dusty books. It's actually taking this thing and putting it into our lives. The word repent, as I talked about it last week, isn't just crying when you get caught and saying, oh God, oh God, I'm sorry. Like we watch so many men do in the Me, in the, in the Me Too stuff that was going, is going on, right? Just, I'm sorry I got caught. No, to repent is to actually change, metanoia. It means to change your direction, to change your mind, to change your whole approach. That's what following God is actually about. If we persist in acting like Egyptians, we get treated like Egyptians. Our actions actually matter for our own lives and the, the lives of others. Moses, even though he didn't want to obey at all, even though he didn't want to do this, and he fought God several steps along the way, it has real benefit for all of Israel that he submitted to that, no matter how much criticism Israel gives him moving forward. I wonder how much we want the blessing of God without the responsibility of obedience. Here's the deal. That should sting a little bit. If it doesn't sting, you're not paying attention. Neither am I. I wonder how much we want the blessing of God without actually real obedience to be like Jesus. I watch that on social media. Christians who say they follow Jesus wishing somebody else would die because they vote a different way. That's not Jesus. That's Egypt. What would it look like in our lives to actually obey him and live like him? To love our enemies the same way we love ourselves? I wonder how much we want the freedom and blessing and love of God without the responsibility of actually being the light of the world, inviting others into the party, throwing our arms as wide open as possible, the way that God throws his arms open. Okay, one more little point. I'll end with this one, and then we'll take communion together. It's a story of current identity, not just ancient history. This embodies, this story embodies who you are. If you're a follower of Christ, this story completely rearranges your identity. Chapter 12, verse 2, look at this. This month for you will be the first month of the year. What? Yahweh is completely changing their calendar. It's going to be totally different than the surrounding calendars. The first month of the year in all the surrounding calendars was when the uh, harvest ended and winter began. And God is saying, no, 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 for you guys, it's going to be springtime. For you guys, it's going to be when the planting starts, like, you know, the very beginning of the growing season. You're going 
to have like a whole different calendar than everybody around you. You're going to be living in the world just like everyone else, but you're not organizing any part of your life the same way. He begins to give them a seven-day week. None of the surrounding culture had that. Your very calendar is going to be different. Your whole way of approaching every single day of your life is going to be different. God is saying, human, meet Sabbath. That day that you take off, that you're no longer in control. Part of the next 40 years in the wilderness is them learning while they're camping out on this huge big camp out trip how to live life completely differently than everybody around them. Here's another way to think about it. Here's a New Testament way to think about this. There were others, there were non-Hebrews who joined the exodus out of Israel. Like you look at chapter 12, verse 37. The Israelites journeyed from Ramesses to Sukkoth. There were about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. Many other people went up with them and also large droves of livestock, both flocks and herds. Apparently, there's room for anyone who will submit to who will follow, who will rearrange life, who will worship Yahweh. Anyone who wants freedom, it's here. And as you begin to follow this, you're acknowledging that we don't belong to ourselves, we belong to Yahweh. There's a whole thing in there about dedicating the firstborn, uh, uh, dedicating all the firstborn of Israel to God. It's no longer sacrificing the firstborn, it's dedicating them. It's about belonging, it's about adoption. It's about becoming part of the family which is what the Apostle Paul writes about. Romans eight fifteen. the spirit you receive as a follower of Jesus. Do you know that when you surrender, you submit your life to Jesus, the New Testament promises that at that moment, he fills you with his Holy Spirit. He brings you to himself as one of his. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. The spirit you receive uh, brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. We get to experience being adopted as God's very own. And for the ladies in the room, the word sonship actually just refers to all the rights and inheritance of the firstborn son. It's open to everyone. Everyone gets to experience this. It's amazing. And you go on a little bit in that passage, verse 23, not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. The adoption's already taken place when we place our faith in Christ, and yet there's more to come. The full expression of it's still in the future. And I love this out of Ephesians chapter one. He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. He's had this planned for you since the very beginning. And so as Israel reenacts this story, it's not just a fictional story. As they do this dinner, this Passover, it's uh, for a whole week. It's not just some sort of like theater production. It's not just a religious ritual, as many have assumed. It's not just a recollection of a past story. It's a reenactment. They're entering into the reality of the story of this event in such a way that they become reconstituted every year as the people of God. And every subsequent generation, as they do Passover together as little children, become part of this story. You become part of the people of God by going through this story. That same thing is true for us as we take communion each week. It's not just a remembrance of the past. It's not just a, a reflection on the past. It's not just a religious ritual. 
There's actually something mystical, I believe, that God does in the midst of taking communion together where he draws us into family. And it could be your very first time in church and you want to orient your life around Jesus. Taking communion is a great first step. Say, I want this to be a part of my life. I want to take it into me, these little elements, in the same way I want the Holy Spirit to fill me. It's absolutely amazing the way that we can do that. We are thanking the Father for the gift of Christ, for the death of Christ on our behalf. We're celebrating what he's done, that he's risen from the grave, that he's seated with God right now. We're inviting the Spirit to fill us and to bring continued transformation to our lives. When we take communion, that's what we're doing. So, so here's what I want to do. We're, we're going to take communion here in just a second. I'm gonna, in just a second, the worship team will come up. But before we do that, like... We don't have time to individually go around the room and ask, hey, so where are you at with Jesus? Like, what's going on in your relationship with God? What was interesting, uh, there's really clear instructions in Exodus that those who were not uh, Israel, they were not identified as Israel, and their sign that they identified through was actually the circumcision of the males of the family, and then everybody was in in that family. (laughs) Uh, We're not going to do that. That would be weird. Um, <laughs> my brain just goes off in like 20 different directions at that point. Reel it in, Gatlin, reel it in. What, um, but what that, what that pointed to is like there was some sort of commitment. There was some sort of like move to get into the family, to be part of Israel, to say I'm aligning my life around God. And what we do in the church is we ask you to actually submit and surrender to Christ, to even pray a prayer of surrender. And to say, I want to be part of the family. And then the outward symbol of that is our baptism that we do periodically. And so if you're here today and you've never been baptized or you've never actually just said, I want to follow Jesus. I want him like at the central part of my life. That's what communion is about. It's about acknowledging that he's there and being part of the family. And so we're going to, as a church, we're going to take communion together in just a second. But I want to give you an opportunity to submit and surrender to Jesus if you've never done that. And this isn't about what kind of church you've attended. It's not about religious background or non-religious background. It's not about sexual identity. It's not about political identity. It's not about any of that stuff. It's just about, I want to follow Jesus in my life. I want him to get to call the shots. I want to be under his protection. I want to enjoy his provision. I want his life and his love flowing through me. I want to enter into this totally different kind of life, even though I feel like I know little about it and like my first prayer was, God, if you're real, I want in. Like that's simple. If you're real, I want in. And maybe that's all you got. I want to give you an opportunity to just pray that. And so I'm going to lead us through a prayer of surrender. And then I'm going to lead us into communion, taking communion together. And if you're here and you don't want to surrender to Jesus and you want to take communion, don't worry about it. Just get up and wander around. Nobody will know and then you can sit back down. But the rest of us are going to get up and wander around and take communion together. So let's pray. Simple prayer, surrender. If you've never done this, I just invite you. Just pray this prayer with me, silently, quietly. It's, a, it's, a, it's an act of repentance. It's an act of reorienting your life. If you're online, you can just pray this. There's a little button that'll come up in a minute that you can click, and somebody will pray for you as well. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you for your presence here and for your love for us. Thank you that you made us in our image, in in your image. You made us in your image. 
and that you love us dearly. And we, I, I, we just confess that we've often wandered away from you. We've often not acknowledged you the same way Pharaoh didn't acknowledge you. In many ways, we've tried to pretend like we were divine. We were in charge. We even found ourselves telling you what we think you should do. And we want to repent. We want to change. We want to come under the cover of your provision and your protection and your love. We want to experience that adoption. We want your kind of life. Thank you for Christ, the man Jesus, his death on the cross for me. Thank you for his resurrection from the dead, a whole different kind of body that you're inviting us into. And thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit. Would you fill me with your spirit now? And empower me to live the kind of life you want and empower me to actually look a little bit more like you day by day by day as I learn to follow you. I give my life to you. Would you allow me to participate with what you're doing in the world today? to join with you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. I'm going to do something embarrassing just for fun because I'm an introvert and I love embarrassing moments and no I don't, I hate them. If you prayed that prayer with me for the very first time, I'm just going to ask you to stand up like right where you're at. You just prayed that prayer with me for the first time. We as a body, we as a community, we as the people of God, we want to celebrate with that act of repentance in your life. And so if you prayed that for the first time, wherever you happen to be, just stand up right where you're at. I know it takes courage. God bless you, man. God bless you. God bless you. Yeah, God bless you guys. Way to go. <laughs> Father, I ask for grace grace to follow you. We thank you for those commitments. God, we ask for grace to follow you, to orient life around you, to actually experience the fullness of your Holy Spirit right now in ways that we never imagined. Would you like turn on the receiver, as it were, that we could hear your voice clearly in Christ's name. Can I get the rest of you to stand up? We're going to move into a time where we take communion together. There's communion elements set up here in the front and the back. These guys are going to lead us through several songs. But let's start out this first one. Let's just take communion. You can just grab family members. You can grab individuals. It's kind of like the nation of Israel all celebrated Passover kind of in their individual homes. And so it's okay to go do that kind of alone or with your family. But it's also okay to do that with other people. And let's take communion together. And, and then... Um, and then Mary, right after that prayer ministry team just come right on up here and if you want prayer for anything going on and especially if you stood up and gave your life to Christ we have a little packet that we'd love to give you that just explains a little bit about what it means to follow Jesus and we'd love to help you in that so Holy Spirit come as we take communion today as a church Father thank you that nothing but the sacrifice of Christ actually brings us close to you and so we just submit, we surrender, we give you our lives. If you're on the prayer ministry team, go ahead and make your way up to the front. We want to take time to pray for one another, and we'll pray for whatever's going on in your life. And 
One of the things, that, one of the fears that I think God wants to actually meet us in today is that fear of not being protected and being provided for that leads us to do all sorts of crazy things with our lives and our resources. If you find that inside, if you find yourself pushing back against kind of even just tithing, even just giving on a regular basis, I just invite you to come up and get some prayer. I think God wants to actually meet you in that in a really powerful way. And it's a step of obedience, but oh my gosh, those steps of obedience actually make a difference in our lives. And so whatever the obedience is that you might feel like God's inviting you to, come up and get some prayer. And then we'll pray for anything. We'll pray for health issues. We'll pray for uh, financial issues, work issues, relational issues, Thanksgiving's right around the corner. Like whatever the thing happens to be, we'd love to pray with you. So go ahead and make your way up here. These guys will keep leading us in worship. Other than that, have a great rest of your day.